the vast majority of Neil Winsing, an assistant professor of history at Nanyang Technological University. Winsing is the historian of the Cold War, and his latest book is The Art of Containment, Britain, the United States, and Anti-Communism in Southeast Asia. Thank you so much for being with us, Winsing. Thank you very much for having me. So Winsing, tell us more about your life story. How did you become a historian? Um, well, I became a historian in a kind of roundabout way. Um, what I studied in the university was both English literature as well as history. I did that as a double major. But I started off with literature uh, in my honours year. I thought I was going to be a literature teacher, actually. But somehow in the midst of teaching, um, because I was also teaching history a little bit, uh, as, as staff movements occurred, I eventually moved towards uh, history and eventually uh, 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 took on coordinatorship uh, of a very small department and became full-time history. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, and, uh, and after about seven years of teaching, then I went on to, to uh, pursue my PhD. Yeah. Did, did your interest in literature early on influence your engagement with history in any way? Yes, I think um, what I was really interested in was the way rhetoric uh, affects people, the way that they feel, the way that they interact with each other, uh, how rhetoric and speech can produce impressions and, and, and shape realities. And so I asked myself about how history is also about the spoken word, about the written word, uh, about impressions and creating realities, you know, in, in the impressions that people have and the kinds of responses that they have to other people. Uh, a lot of the history depends not on impersonal forces, but on encounters and interactions between people. Well, so let's dive right into your latest book, The Art of Containment. Mm -hmm. So what is The Art of Containment for listeners who have not read the book? Well, Art of Containment uh, is about a geostrategic arc in Southeast Asia. Um, if you think about the anti-communist countries, uh, starting with the mainland, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Indonesia, and the Philippines, uh, if you think about them geostrategically, they actually form an arc around the South China Sea. And this was something that the US policymakers were actually envisioning from quite early on, like you know, in the late 1940s. They were thinking of these, these Southeast Asian countries as part of a great crescent that would stretch from Japan, now newly uh, an ally of the United States, through uh, the South China Sea and linking up with India. So it's a great crescent with an arc that is you know, part of it. So the arc of containment is about the containment of the Vietnamese Revolution, uh, as well as China and whatever regional ambitions that it had, because this geostrategic arc of uh, US-friendly states in Southeast Asia actually enclosed the South China Sea. So that's where the containment comes from. So how does your book challenge what we know about the Cold War? Yes, so a big part of how uh, many scholars view post-1945 Southeast Asia, uh, you know, not only through decolonization as well as the nationalist movements, is the failure of the United States in Vietnam. And particularly for people who look at American foreign relations, Vietnam cast this massive shadow over the way that people approach U.S.-Southeast Asian relations. So they take this one particular of U.S.-Vietnam relations 
and they extrapolate it to be the general picture of Southeast Asia. Therefore, uh, you know, you could, you could extrapolate and say that Southeast Asian nationalism kicked out all European or Western imperialism and uh, in, in some measure became completely free of imperialism. I mean, that's the most extreme, maybe like oversimplified version. So what I try to say is that Vietnam is an anomaly because so many of the states uh, in Southeast Asia, where the majority of the peoples are, you know, like Indonesia, majority of the resources are, you know, Philippines, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, the majority of where the peoples and the resources are, these states actually went on a pro-US trajectory in spite of America's failures in Vietnam. And they, they installed or they undergirded that arc of containment. So instead of letting a Vietnam-centric picture uh, determine the way that we see post-1945 Southeast Asia, I try to show a more characteristic, a more consequential history of Southeast Asia and its relations with the US by understanding how anti-communism in the region uh, intertwined with US policy. And what about the role of Britain, which features in the subtitle of your book? Yes, and I think the, the big problem of the way that people see uh, Britain in a conventional way is they, they end up sidelining it, I think, because there, there's maybe an overemphasis on how, how French decolonization uh, and, and its failures in, in Vietnam become the failures of the United States. And then you don't see, unfortunately, this massive fading but still tenacious empire of Great Britain uh, lingering on in the region. And what I try to show is that because Britain, through its tenacity and its neo-colonial uh, strategies, manages to persist in Malaya and Singapore, that in many ways overlaps uh, for a very much longer period than all of the other uh, European powers. That overlaps with the United States' uh, expansion of power in the region. And I suggest that because of that, 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 that intertwining of, of a fading British Empire and a rising American power, that is more consequential to the history of Southeast Asia. So that's a really ambitious argument and a really you know, sweeping reorientation of that history. But do you have any kind of favourite stories human stories that really illustrate these broad geopolitical changes. Um, one of the stories that I liked uh, working on was a, a kind of personal rivalry between the Prime Minister of Malaya, uh, uh, Tunku Abdul Rahman, and the President of Indonesia, Sukarno. And even though there are moments when they seem to be meeting each other, and in my book there's actually a picture of them having a light-hearted moment, that they seem to be laughing and enjoying each other's company, there's actually a rivalry between the two of them that's seething underneath. Uh, one part of it, which I don't talk about in my book, but I, 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 I make some references to, um, is that Sukarno thinks of himself as a true nationalist because uh, through his leadership, Indonesia wins its independence by revolution, mm. by fighting. Whereas Malaya only gets its independence, that's Sukarno's point of view, by negotiation, mm. through constitutional reform. He can't possibly be, and, and there is evidence that he sort of needles the Tengku when he meets mm. him, uh, that you're not a real fighter. You're not a true revolutionary. Your nationalism is, is in some ways is, is bestowed upon you. I mean, that's the, the impression that is given from a lot of their interactions. Um, but... The Tunku is no less aggressive, no less, I think, ambitious in, in an expansionist way. 
so when I see the a rivalry between the two, it goes back to the way that Malaya, freshly independent in 1957, is ready to assist the CIA and Britain in a plot to topple Sukarno because uh, Sumatra, for example, which was uh, trying to secede from uh, Indonesia, uh, the, 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 the Malayans actually per perceived Sumatra as a natural uh, part of this greater Malayan, uh, 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 sort of greater Malayan unity between, between Sumatra and, and Malaya. So there's that rivalry there, and it extends all the way into the confrontation period, 1960s. Um, I enjoyed actually working on that because you can see the Tengku maybe from a different light. Mm. You don't normally think of him as that type of uh, aggressive mm. player in, in the region, uh, taking on the rivalry and really pushing it. Um, and, and so I liked um, going through some of the documents and seeing how he was also uh, uh, playing the game and working with the imperial powers. Yeah. Well, so let's talk a bit about sources and archives, right? So I, mean, I think one of the things that's obvious about your book is just how transnational it is mm. in drawing together material from various libraries and then repositories. Mm. So, I mean, what was that like? How do you go about kind of the research process of your book? Um, well, I think the first step is to be really desperate about getting as many documents as you can because how many opportunities will you have when you go to, for example, a presidential library. Uh, if I go to the Harry Truman Presidential Library, which is in Independence, Missouri, it's not like I'm going to Independence, Missouri uh, on a regular basis. It's going to be one shot, several days there, and I need to really plow through as many documents as I can. So uh, the first step is figuring out what are the repositories which will, withheld, will have the wealth of documents, and then you plan your trip so the big trip that I did, which will be burned into my brain, um, is when I went to six different uh, libraries over the course of eight weeks in the summer of 2012. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget it. Um, you know, I went to the National Archives in College Park in Maryland. Then I went to the Princeton uh, Library for some uh, documents, after which I flew to Boston to do the John F. Kennedy Library. After that, I went to Texas, uh, Austin, for the Lyndon Johnson Library. After that, I went to the Truman Library uh, in Missouri. And after that, I went to the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas. Wow, it's a big road trip. It was a massive, <laughs> massive road trip. And, you know, I mean, I will always think of it fondly and also think that I will never be young enough to do that again. You know, just being on the road for, for quite a long time uh, and, uh, and it just being really obsessed by using my digital camera to, to just take as many pictures as I could of the, the relevant documents to Malaysian, Singaporean, British, and American history that I could find. Um, one of the archivists in the Eisenhower Library said, oh, you're going through these boxes of documents as if they're going out of style. <laughs> but I think they, they can understand that so many researchers are only going to have a very limited amount of time, and so they're just going to be rushing through to gather the materials. Uh, that's one thing to say. Gathering materials is one part of it. But the other part of it is, you know, obviously going in with a provisional narrative mm -hmm. of what you're looking for. Because you don't really have a chance to, to read the documents. Um, of course, different historians have different ways of doing this. Um, but as a rookie, I think the desperation is just to gather materials. So I go in with a provisional sense of where 
these materials are going to fit in and make myself uh, constantly open to the possibility that what I come across is going to make it fork or deviate or you know, shift in a completely different direction. In terms of access, um, it is, I guess, a regrettable situation that a lot of the regional uh, official diplomatic records are not necessarily easy to access. Um, some of them are just not available at all. They, uh, who knows if they've been catalogued. Mm -hmm. um, there is uh, uh, maybe Official Secrets Act or they're not, governments are not necessarily interested in, in, in making them public. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is a very serious limitation. But at the same time, what I was um, happy to find is that players who are major as well as maybe middle ranking uh, leave behind memoirs, mm. private papers uh, that will intersect with their official roles, right? And you discover, you know, community leaders who have political impact. They leave their private papers behind or they, or they turn up in the newspapers uh, or they write, you know, memoirs and everything. And these are the ways that we capture that Southeast Asian voice. It's not, it's not a perfect situation, but um, once you discover these sources, they match on very nicely. In most cases, I found, they match on very nicely to their appearances in the American and the British documents as well. So then you get that fuller picture uh, of, of these players and how, how significant and substantial their roles are uh, in shaping British or American policy or regional affairs as well. Well, so I, I think one of the things about your book that really struck me was how you make a, a broad sweeping argument, but at the same time you marshal a vast amount of information to a tightly knit and you know really a suspenseful and gripping narrative. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, say, say a bit more about writing, right? How how do oh. you achieve that? How do you enliven these kind of you know sweeping historical processes? Yeah, I think that. You know, we don't want a historical narrative to be about impersonal forces mm -hmm. sort of pushing human pawns around uh, as if there was no inner life for a lot of these uh, uh, actors. And so what I really wanted to get down to uh, was, you know, the agency mm -hmm. of human beings and the limitations of their agency. You know, what agendas or what goals could they have? What fears did they have? Uh, what kinds of scrambling they did to preserve their historical legacy. And so I, I tried to map personalities onto the events. I mean, successfully or not, please buy the book <laughs> and, you know, and find out how that worked out. But uh, you know, I, I was encouraged to find that you know, a lot of the people who did proofreading, helped me with proofreading, uh, said that they were excited by the stories of individuals caught up in these events who are trying to control some of them, trying to manipulate some of these events, uh, ending up also sometimes even just being pushed along by others and everything. So um, I try to focus on the characters. And uh, I guess if you zoom out, you, you know, if, you, if you do a, like a dramatis personae of, of you know, cast of characters of, of, of my book, you may actually find that there aren't that many. Mm. And I thought that I wanted to write a book that I could manage my own, you know, mental uh, 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 picture of, right, how can my own limited 
mental capacity to handle the uh, uh, constellation of characters? Like, what are those limits mm-hmm. for me? And I guess you'll discover it's quite limited. <laughs> but but for me and for the reader and, and yeah. for the reader, right? I mean, you, you know, how many how many Games of Thrones <laughs> seasons can I go through with just like one book? I, I couldn't possibly. And so I I wanted to focus on significant characters. Um, uh, which of course is a perilous path, but I wanted to focus on significant characters, uh, representative characters, but also characters that you could recognize were reappearing, mm. as opposed to sort of being blindsided by who is this guy, mm. who is this lady, you know, where did they come from, what is their backstory? So I think I was really interested in those, um, that type of an approach, that um, events of an of a kind of like an epic and global proportion are swirling around and, uh, and pass through individuals as they interact with each other and try to command the events around them, you know, with whatever success. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously this kind of history has attracted the criticism that it's overly focused on kind of the big man, mm, mm. and especially with the bicentennial, then mm-hmm. there's you know, and I think a renewed interest in kind of the social and cultural dimensions of yes. history and, and of everyday lives. Yes. So where do you see kind of political and military history going, um, mm. or but, where would you like to see it go? Well, I would like to see I think increasing amount of agency and uh, uh, showcased mm-hmm. and illuminated uh, of the characters that we don't normally look at. Okay. So. In this field, this subfield of U.S. and Southeast Asian history, increasingly we learn a lot more about Vietnamese actors, mm. right? And that that creates a very rich um, uh, resource for understanding that 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 terrible, brutal uh, uh, conflict of the U.S. in Vietnam and also the Vietnamese Revolution and its implications. So we're discovering more and more about those actors. But much of the region, other than giants. I guess in in historical memory, like a like a Suharto, uh, like a Lee Kuan Yew. Um, other than these uh, characters, we don't necessarily have middle rung mm. people, ordinary people who I don't think we should sideline as having a tremendous impact on, on things that are happening at the middle level or at the at the highest, most elite level. So what I hope that military and political history can do. And like, like I said, people who are working on Vietnamese history are already starting to do okay. this. Uh, is to think about the, the people who surround the, the figures that we are now, we now found, uh, think of as very famous, epic characters. The people who surround them, whose maybe names are not as familiar. Uh, what kind of impact did they have? What was their inner life? Uh, that we can infer from whatever they leave behind mm-hmm. or the impact that they had on others, right? What, what can we, again, surmise from the way that people reacted to even somebody who leaves very little behind? Mm-hmm. I think that, that that would be very exciting. I mean, I try to do that every once in a while in, in my book. I mean, I guess I'm fortunate that the people that I focus on, uh, 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 you know, they leave a lot behind mm-hmm. because clearly they, they operate at that level. But I also try to think about uh, moments where people who don't leave anything behind seem to seem to have an underappreciated impact on what is occurring. Yeah, to come the subordinates in history. Yeah, the, the subordinates to the general. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and and you know, uh, I, I try to bring them in every once in a while, but I I think that 
uh, uh, I would like to be able to become a more skillful historian to to get at those types of stories in whatever is my next uh, uh, phase uh, uh, in in being a scholar mm. of the past. Yeah. Uh, so you have worked on this book at both North, Northwestern and Yale before coming back to NTU and publishing it as a book. So I was wondering if you can say a bit more about how it was different working on this project in the United States and then back in Singapore. Hmm. Well, I suppose I would say that um, while you're in the United States, the conversations that you can have with greater immediacy, uh, um, I mean, that's something that you can't necessarily get being mm. out here in Singapore. You sort of have to wait for your email to go through the time zone uh-huh. you know, before somebody responds to you. And also at the same time, you, you, you don't necessarily have that, that sort of personal mm. touch of being able to uh, speak to somebody. Um, so there are more co-war historians in the United States? Yeah, I mean, okay. there'll be more of them. The, the conversation will be, uh, uh, I, I guess, easier to strike up mm-hmm. because of proximity and, and, and so on. But I think that the, the difference for me was about really stages in, in the formulation and the production of the book. Uh, in, in the US, it was about all the foundational moments mm-hmm. of it, right? The research, um, making a narrative exist for the very first time, uh, subjecting it to uh, critiques and everything at, at its very early stages before it becomes a dissertation and then a manuscript and, and, and going through that process. So I was able to do a lot of my revisions while I was at Yale. Uh, and and uh, I was I had a lot of space and time to be able to 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 do to do that, but when I came back to Singapore, it was all the things that maybe people don't think about when it comes to publication. Mm-hmm. For example, writing to repositories to ask for permission to ask to to get a particular picture, uh, okay. a map. How much do I have to pay you for the rights to to use this picture? Oh my goodness, I will never be able to afford that. Uh, so therefore, I need to go to another repository which will give me maybe a parallel picture that, that again, showcases whatever. So, so that whole process uh, uh, takes a tremendous amount of time. It is, it is a, a project in and of itself. Things like getting the rights, things like getting maps, um, things like getting permissions to use parts of your writing that have been published mm. elsewhere, um, figuring out how your index is going to work. You know, the, the very... Um, you know, kind of ordinary parts of it that are all integral mm-hmm. that you don't even see mm-hmm. uh, as part of the process until you're in the thick of doing it. So, I mean, it's about the stages okay. more than anything. I'm not sure if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, that, that is a really interesting thing to think about, kind of the project management mm-hmm. part of a book, right? Or life cycle of an academic book. Right, right. I, I was also wondering, though, do you think place or location uh, has influenced the way you think about this history. So, for instance, just being back in Singapore uh, changed the way you think about the well, Cold War as opposed to being... Well, I think that when you ask the question that way, uh, it's, it's also important that now I'm also teaching it, mm. right, to Southeast Asians and the stakes of trying to explain to, especially, I think, Singaporeans uh, uh, about uh, a history that doesn't usually appear on their radar, um, that, that I think changes the stakes slightly. It doesn't mean that they're, they're, they're greater or, or, or anything, but I guess in some ways it also becomes personal, mm-hmm. uh, a different type of personal uh, journey 
to try and communicate uh, a story to uh, an undergraduate audience, right? Because a book, you know, who's going to pick up my book? Who knows? Um, can I teach from my book? Yes, I can. And how do I communicate that when you have a tremendous baggage of having put together this project and try to articulate it to an American audience or British audience, uh, an international audience? Now, uh, the things that you, 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 you use to, to articulate that, they're slightly different, right? Um, how do you make it clear to a, a local audience what it means? Uh, because, I mean, one of the things that, that is important was that a lot of, I think, local students think of nation building as an infrastructural process, mm-hmm. right? Here's a hospital, here are some roads, here are schools, uh, here are public utilities. That's what nation building is, infrastructure. But nation building, if you think about revolutionary Southeast Asia and you think about the Cold War, nation building is often a very bloody process, right? It is about one group that eventually rises to dominance for various reasons, whether it's external and internal or a combination of that, and the decimating of the oppositional force, right? Another faction which had an alternate vision for that revolution. So these far more brutal, often, uh, 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 you know, far more violent parts of the story, they don't feature in, I guess, a lot of uh, young students' notions of what nation-building means. So in fact, nation-building is not a bloodless process. It is not this harmonious process of just roads, right? Uh, uh, and, and even a war over where the roads are going to be, <laughs> right, in, 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 in other countries and so on. These are big deals, mm-hmm. right, and the, and the stakes are life and death. And uh, that's something I try to communicate. I'm not sure that I'm always successful with that because, like I said, the, the book is so close to me and I've articulated it over and over when I try to explain my research and everything and trying to bring it to a, an audience that is completely unfamiliar with it uh, and for whom the experience is entirely different, I think that is, that's an interesting test um, that I continue to wrestle with. Yeah. So you taught A-level history for a long time yes. before you did your PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, in hindsight, how do you think about that experience? And, and I mean, do you have any thoughts on kind of the level of historical awareness mm. among young people mm-hmm. in Singapore? Mm-hmm. Be, be they 17 or 18 year olds in the junior college or or university wow. students? Okay, so that's a tough question <laughs> because it, 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 you know, it, it requires that I hark back to uh, times when I taught a syllabus uh, that I was not always uh, at ease with, not because it was a poor syllabus, but because I think that um, you know, my book had not been written yet and I had not gone at that journey to find out these things. Mm. So, you know, for example, there will be moments where you are teaching the Cold War and then you, you come across a primary source and you bring it up in lecture. You know, John F. Kennedy, for example, says something about, well, Vietnam this and Vietnam that and also Malaya. And then people start sniggering mm. in the class because they're like, what? What happened in Malaya that is of any consequence that would make an American president even mention it? Interesting. Right? And so it's a, it's a, it's a blind spot. Mm. And as I teach it, because in many ways it doesn't exist, uh, because it didn't exist, right? There was, no, 
there was not, I think, a, a text that maybe systematically drew British decolonization, American empire, the Cold War, and the revolution together, and put it in Malaysia mm. and Singapore, that when people start sniggering like that in, in a class, and you, know, you say it, there's actually no answer, because in fact, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist for you to make a statement about. Mm. Um, and so for me, uh, the difference now is uh, I look back on those moments, mm. right? I look back on those moments and, and, and think about ways of completing that, that, uh, that dialogue with the students to mm. say, well, I wasn't able to respond and I, in my position, didn't even know how to react to that. I mean, I, I, I even thought, yeah, you know, uh, uh, John Kennedy says something very strange. But now it becomes much clearer to me what, what that was about, what the stakes were, and there was a massive story behind it, and, and I, I went on that journey of trying to tell it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to bring up kind of the rule of Malay and the Cold War, which mm. is so kind of underestimated or mm. underrated. And, and actually, mm. I think in 2012, you gave a talk at a school uh, about that precise topic and, and oh. I think you were really doing a PhD and, yeah, yeah. and a friend was telling me all about it I see and I think that was the first time I really thought of Malaya as being part of that yeah part of that yeah and, and you process. know I think that uh, that was a, a real um, that was a revelation to me mm. and let's let's be clear maybe you know that that, that is a that's also a revelation about how naive and how ill-informed I was when I was encountering it mm. but uh, you know, this is this is in the documents. Um, you know, it's the beginning of 1954. This is how my book starts. I'm sure you know this. Um, it's 1954, and already the French are, are on the back foot. They're losing to the Viet Minh. You know, in a few months' time, they will be defeated in Dien Bien Phu, and then the French will have to begin their retreat out of Vietnam. So at the beginning of 1954, um, President Eisenhower's advisors are sort of circling around him and and subtly suggesting that it's time for the U.S. to commit uh, American combat troops to save the French uh, in their war against the Viet Minh. And shockingly, Eisenhower says, I cannot imagine placing U.S. combat troops anywhere in Southeast Asia with the exception of Malaya. Mm. And that was, uh, uh, that was strange to me. It was shocking to me. And that's why, of course, it appears in my book as like you know the first... Uh, entry point into the story because obviously if your entire worldview has been Vietnam-centric that the Vietnam War is the thing that is most consequential and characteristic of Southeast Asian history, when you read this, your interpretation uh, can very understandably be, here is Eisenhower um, finding a way to not get embroiled in Vietnam and let's move on from here but my positionality is, goodness me, Malaya? Uh, there must be some significance. Let's dig into it. And then, you know, suddenly my, my project went from a shock of discovering a document like this to unearthing records, conversations, um, people freaking out in diplomatic uh, cables and everything over uh, Malaya and Singapore and how those were actually part of a bigger regional story that surrounded Vietnam. What do you think the art of containment can teach us about the present? Oh. 
be it in terms of the US-China trade war, right. or Brexit, okay. or any of the other regional conflicts well, you presently face? Uh, I, I, I suppose it depends on whether or not anybody is reading my book, <laughs> um, but maybe what it can um, help us understand, and I've, I've started to write a little bit about this for like, you know, in op-eds and, 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 and other yeah. essays and so on. Um, what m- most importantly... I want people to take away if they were going to try and think about the present and the future is to remember that the story does not revolve around the two titans the United States and China I mean so much of the focus is on the big players when the middle to small actors the ASEAN countries are probably the ones who for their own self-interest for because of their internal struggles during the immediate post-World War II situation, these were the players who uh, shaped the transition of Southeast Asia from European-dominated colonialism to, to U.S. Mm-hmm. informal empire. It, it, you know, if you look at the failure of the United States in Vietnam, it's clear that the economic and military power of the U.S. was not a determinant in the way that that Southeast Asia was going to move. It's not wasn't the primal, uh, prime determinant, but in many ways it was the agency of the Southeast Asians. So today when we talk about rivalry in the South China Sea, the militarizing of, of the waters by China and whether or not the United States is challenging them, uh, uh, you know, all these various artificial islands, the focus is so tight on the big powers that I think the analysis gets distorted as to what ought to happen or what you can really even expect to happen uh, uh, and I've written you know, an essay about this and I believe it's going to come out soon in, in a global uh, uh, analysis journal that really it's, it's the Southeast Asians um, and they don't necessarily have to act in concert but it's the Southeast Asians the decisions that they make and the shape of what kind of order they, they want to be uh, in place that is really going to determine how that, that rivalry plays out. Um, yeah. Well, so one final question. Mm-hmm. Now that the book is out, what do you think you'll be working on in 10 years' time? In 10 years? Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, I'll be a very old person trying to take care of my health. Uh, I think in, in, in 10 years, I, I hope that I will be uh, uh, moving into the 1990s mm. of the relationship between the U.S. and Southeast Asia. Uh, currently, I'm thinking about the 1980s, which is, of course, a follow-up from, from my work. Uh, after the Vietnam War, what is the U.S. relationship with ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations? And I get, gather, you know, I get the sense that that 1980s story is obviously going to spill over into the 1990s. So depending on how long things take, and depending on how declassification mm-hmm. goes, this project uh, will, I don't morph into maybe two, or be the one project that I'll be building up to okay. in, in the next five to, to seven years mm-hmm. as I try to chart uh, um, what is the next phase of the relationship. And there, there is actually very little that's written about it that, I can, that I've actually encountered at this time. Uh, the 1980s for the US and Southeast Asia relationship that is not necessarily about Vietnam, the fallout of the refugee uh, crisis and so on. I want to look beyond that and maybe think about 
how the rest of the, the region is operating outside of, of just the fallout of Vietnam. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today, Wenting. It's yes. a pleasure. To our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. Till next time.